we know in Colorado that marijuana is not the substance it used to be. Um, we're not talking about these low grade joints anymore. We're talking about concentrates. We're talking about a brand new, uh, you know, literally chemical grade product now that's been modified. And so we have to kind of eliminate our preconceived notions about what this drug used to be and really understand what it is now um, because of a commercial industry that's that's totally altered it. Howdy, everyone, and welcome back to Moment of Truth, the podcast of American Moment. My name is Saurabh Sharma. I'm the president of American Moment, and this week, it's just me again. Nick has become quite popular on the conference and podcast circuit, so he is in, I believe, Ogden, Utah, speaking at a Christian men's conference. We will excitedly have him back very soon. Uh, this week, I'm joined by a fascinating guest on a controversial issue. Today, we had on Luke Niferados, who serves as the executive vice president of Smart Approaches to Marijuana. Um, but I'll get back to that in a second. Before I do that, be sure to go to AmericanMoment.org. There you can find everything we have cooking. Be sure to sign up for AM Fridays. This is our summer lecture series on Capitol Hill. We have a room there that can fit tons of people. And every Friday afternoon, uh, for interns and junior staff on the Hill, we are hosting a summer lecture series with some of the greatest speakers across the conservative movement. We have Stephen Miller, John Esconis, Oren Cass. We have Russ Vogt. We have John Allen Gay. We have fantastic speakers on every issue that matters, tech, foreign policy, immigration, trade, uh, everything that you need to know about a cutting-edge, imaginative conservative agenda. So be sure to fill that form out, as well as our general interest form to make sure they're keeping up with everything we're doing. Back to Luke. Uh, Luke is widely recognized as one of the nation's leading drug policy experts, lever- leveraging more than a decade of working on drug addiction and healthcare issues. Luke drives the strategy behind Sam's federal, state, and educational initiatives. He's testified in state capitals across America, and he's a sought-after guest on major media outlets, including ABC, Fox News, NBC, CNBC, C-SPAN, Newsmax, and network affiliates, as well as syndicated and local radio shows in markets coast-to-coast. Luke has been featured in Time Magazine and as a speaker at drug policy events held by The Economist, the United Nations Commission on Narcotic Drugs, and hundreds of town halls. Prior to joining Sam, he was the co-founder of a successful healthcare company, and he attended the University of Denver and has a Master of Arts from Johns Hopkins. University. He's a very smart guy, and we go through a comprehensive case on his perspective on the marijuana issue, as well as drug policy legalization in general. I'd be fascinated to hear you guys' feedback on this, uh, and we'll be including tons of links to their website where they make the comprehensive academic and policy and moral case for all these issues as well. Uh, feel free to fill out a review. Five stars only would be fantastic on Apple Podcasts. Subscribe on YouTube to see this episode live uh, and see our beautiful faces, or at least Luke's. Um, Although I got a haircut, maybe I'm looking okay this week too. Uh, And thank you guys as always for listening. We'll go now to Luke Niferados. Luke, thank you for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me. We always like to hear how our guests got involved in the fight they're involved in today. Uh, tell us the story. It's a pretty circuitous one for you, and I think our guests would be fascinated by it. Yeah. So, you know, it's kind of funny because a lot of people are like, well, you know, have you ever smoked marijuana? That's the number one question I get from uh, reporters. <laughs> and I'm like, why does that matter at all? Uh, like, have you ever done heroin? Like, you know, like anyway. So, um, uh, no, I don't have any story of addiction or, you know, I actually grew up in a substance free household, um, you know, doing ministry across the world, um, you know, doing refugee aid in Sudan, Africa and um, doing ministry across the, the globe. 
globe, really. Uh, but really what brought me to this is I'm from Colorado and my state happened to be the first state in, in the United States to legalize marijuana um, and commercialize it. And so basically saw that firsthand. Um, you know, I was against it from the get go, um, really didn't like it, uh, but kind of thought I was on an island. You know, I thought it was like one of the only people in my generation. I'm a millennial um, who was against it. And so kind of felt like, well, I'll keep my opinions to myself. Uh, but, you know, as I spent the, the years growing up in, in Colorado and kind of then um, I you know got married, had a kid. Now I have two daughters. Um, I saw the impact on my girls. I saw the impact on families around me and really just came at this from a parent. Um, and so uh, really, it, to me, it all kind of came to a head when in uh, mid 2017, my wife and I were taking we then had just one daughter taking her for a walk in her stroller. Lovely community of northeast Denver um, called Stapleton. And we're walking lots of young families, parks, playgrounds, all that kind of thing. So you'd expect it to be safe and great. Mm-hmm. Walking her down the sidewalk in her stroller, she's asleep, she's 10 months old, somebody lights up a joint and that secondhand marijuana smoke just engulfs her stroller. And my wife turns to me and she goes, you know, every time we take her for a walk, this is happening. And uh, I turn, I was like, this is like, nobody's talking about this. This is a big problem, uh, particularly for young families. And so my wife and I both kind of said, you know, we should actually try to do something about this. And uh, it was really fortuitous timing because a few months later I met uh, Kevin Sabat, um, who was a former Obama, Clinton, Bush advisor um, on drug policy, who was trying to start an organization to take on the whole marijuana movement, along with uh, Patrick Kennedy, the, the former Democratic uh, congressman from Rhode Island. And so uh, when I heard that there was a group coming together to try to stop this, I was like, sign me up. Let, let's do this. So um, that's kind of how I came to the issue was I really didn't have any personal experience, but just ended up kind of living in the state where we were kind of ground zero for drug legalization, frankly. That's fascinating. So I want to take the the wide historical view on on all of this. Um, you know, the the drug war in popular imagination has taken on extremely negative connotations. Is there any alternative history of that? What well, walk me through the timeline here? What was the sort of apogee of American drug enforcement and the benefits and mistakes that came out of that? It's a great question. So no doubt about it. There's a ton of negative press on the right and the left on the drug war. They, you know, they, they it's very frequent. You hear that it failed. Um, and whenever I hear that kind of simplistic uh, statement that the drug war failed, it's kind of a truism. People just kind of assume that it's true. Mm-hmm. But I've never heard anybody actually like state why they think that it's failed or prove that why it has failed. So I'm not going to be on here today to to, uh, defend the drug war. I think there's a lot of failures, certainly in the drug war. But what I will say is I will question that truism with with the statement of fact. And the fact is that uh, if you look at our legal drugs, marijuana and alcohol or excuse me, uh, tobacco and alcohol, uh, you know, 60 percent of Americans use alcohol, 30 percent of Americans use tobacco. So our legal drugs are widely used. Our illegal drugs, heroin, fentanyl, you know, all the, uh, you know, math, et cetera, are a fraction of a percent of this country use those drugs. So clearly, uh, prohibition on drugs has worked in terms of keeping the prevalence of drugs down, the use of these drugs down. A fraction of our society uses illegal drugs. And I think that is counterintuitive to folks because they kind of think, well, you know, it's used everywhere, but it's really not. Uh, regular use of, of illicit drugs is, is very, very low. So, I'm not giving that statistic to say the war on drugs has been a success. But what I do think is that the the wide panning of that policy is, is really uh, overly simplistic. Now, um, you know, in terms of the history, I mean, it really all started in the 1970s when we had the Controlled Substances Act from President Nixon um, that scheduled all these drugs um, to say what was going to be you know illegal and marijuana was one of them, um, which is an issue I work on. Um, but, you know, what we've seen over the years is, yes, there's always a you know, portion of society that uses drugs and we need to figure out kind of what to do with them. But the 
uh, overreaction, I would say, of saying, well, uh, you know, this there's still some people who are using it, so let's just legalize it uh, and and kind of stop fighting uh, the the fight, so to speak. I think that is uh, you know way extreme, and, and it would create a lot more harm than I think what's what's been happening with prohibition of drugs. Yeah, very interesting. So, I, I, and you know, there's kind of two things that I think people mean when they say the drug war failed. Either they mean that the specific methods of enforcement and downstream consequences in terms of criminals, like you know, imprisonment and stuff, right. or the idea that the law is a teacher at all, which is just like patently absurd. Like obviously, as you stated with those statistics, that making something illegal does decrease usage like that's just obviously the case and um, people might quibble with the particular aspects of enforcement i think that in most cases they've been significantly underrated um but that but that makes a lot of sense okay in the 2000s what was the status quo specifically when it comes to marijuana across the country um you know pre any state legalizing or decriminalizing it what was the usage rate and then what were the first legal dominoes to start to fall in the 2000s yeah so great question so really we saw a massive decrease in the use of marijuana um, particularly among youth um, but you know nationwide from the 1980s into the 1990s, there was this um, massive movement called the Parents Movement, um, where you had parents in communities all across the country speaking up on uh, the issues of marijuana for their kids, for teens, um, getting active in high schools, getting active in advocacy. Um, you saw the Reagan administration respond to that, um, you know, and, and we had Nancy Reagan involved and just say no and, and all that kind of stuff started happening. So there's a huge movement of kind of education, you know, keeping uh, marijuana and head shops out of communities, all that stuff get into the 2000s and things started to change because the the marijuana movement realized that uh, this idea of legalizing marijuana wholesale was not popular and and that you know families were against this parents were rising up so they they, they came up with a novel scheme to get around that by playing on America's sympathies in the form of medical marijuana. And you can look this up. Um, Normal uh, was kind of the OG marijuana legalization group. And it's a lot of potheads and stoner guys and hippie guys that you would kind of expect. And, uh, and Normal, uh, one of their founders talks about it in an interview he did back in his like early, early 2000s or late 90s. He said, we're going to call it medical marijuana and we will get people's sympathies. And that's exactly what happened. So California became the first state to legalize medical marijuana in um, late late 1980s. Nothing really happened again until really early 2000, about 2006, 2008, Colorado then legalized medical marijuana, a few other places. And so basically, folks thought that what they were doing was legalizing a medicine, but it was just weed. It was joints. It was people smoking it. California's law, Colorado's law. It was very easy to get a medical marijuana card. You have glaucoma, for example. Uh, you know, Can any you kind explain of explain that. Like, what's what's the whole glaucoma thing? Is it real? What was the, the why why did that become this like central meme in the in the marijuana legalization discourse? I, I frankly have no idea. Um, I think it's just kind of an odd, like one of those unique odd illnesses that they said it cured. When now we know and we understand 10, 15 years later that, it, that marijuana does not do anything with glaucoma. In fact, interestingly, North Carolina is having debate on medical marijuana and glaucoma was the first qualifying condition they pulled out of the bill text because they said, oh, it clearly does not help. So it's, it's hilarious how this conversation has changed over 20 years uh, on glaucoma. But for whatever reason, that was one of them. Um, pain, though, uh, generalized pain is the top condition typically cited for people to get medical marijuana. Um, and, and the average user is a, a male, white, in their mid-30s, um, clearly not somebody who's a cancer patient, which I think is what people were kind of sold on, was this idea of medical marijuana to help cancer patients was really where this ultimately um, began. 
So that started to change Americans' views on the subject of marijuana. Uh, you know, maybe I don't want it to be recreationally legal, but medical marijuana, that that's a good off-ramp for me. I'm going to help patients, going to help veterans. Um, clearly here, uh, you know, often we hear about how this is going to help veterans. At, at, the, at the point right before Colorado's legalization or legalization of medical marijuana, what was the percentage of Americans that were oh, using it? Yeah, so it was starting to rise in the early 2000s. Okay. Um, you know, we'd hit, seen this huge parent movement driving down use to really unprecedented low levels of, of use of marijuana. Then in the early 2000s, we started to see it creeping up. And it was because I think personally, advocates were getting better at selling this as medicine. You were hearing more about the medical value of, of marijuana. So we started to see usage rates go up. So I would say we were probably, you know, it was down to seven or 9% of youth in, uh, in the late 90s. I think we were starting to See it go up to 13, 15, 20% of youth that were, were trying it in the last year. Mm -hmm. um, we were seeing the general uh, adult public starting to get more interested. Um, it was like 20, 30% at least trying it once in the last year. Um, and so we were seeing those those use rates start to rise um, as there was more interest in the medical value, more interest in it. You know, one of the things they were saying was that it's less harmful than alcohol. Um, so I think there's there was that dynamic as well. So you had interest, you had people trying it out. Um, and then you know, as you start seeing states start to legalize medical marijuana, then you just what you what we got was an industry that started commercializing the drug, changing it, promoting it. Um, so you had medical marijuana dispensaries that were advertising these products. And so, of course, that's going to drive up usage rates. And so we saw the usage rates continue to go up through the 2000s. And now they're at unprecedented levels um, today. But as that usage rate started going up, then we started seeing boats start happening to, to legalize the substance in mass in, in states across the country. So Colorado legalizes medical marijuana. Walk me through just a basic chronology of the next 10 years. Yeah. So um, Colorado did this in I think it was 2006. We legalized medical marijuana. Um you know, college students. I was, you know, I uh, graduated in 2012. So, uh, you know, I had a lot of friends in college that had medical marijuana cards that came from out of state states where they didn't have medical marijuana. They came to Colorado, go to college, get a medical marijuana card, start selling on the campus, et cetera. Um, so it was totally a farce program. Everybody knew it in the state of Colorado, um, but it was called medicine uh, because it was political. And so uh, and, and was this did, did the proliferation happen because doctors took it as minimally seriously as as the people did i mean like how how did it become so easy to just get a card yeah so it had nothing to do with the medical doctors at all that that's why it was a purely political play and i think people heard medical and they saw patients on tv you know they had they trotted out you know one of the biggest highest performing ads in colorado was an ad with a veteran who said i have ptsd I use marijuana and it helps me. And, um, you know, not going to question folks anecdotal evidence, but we can't make statewide policy or nationwide policy based on anecdote. And what the research tells us, you know, one of the big misnomers out there is that we have no research on marijuana because it's illegal. We have tens of thousands of research studies on marijuana. And the research is very unequivocal that using marijuana actually exacerbates PTSD, exacerbates anxiety. That's what we've got right now. And so but none, none you know, nonetheless, you have that ad. It's very convincing for folks. They want to help veterans. Um, the drug industries have been really good at using veterans as stooges, quite frankly, um, to legalize and profit off of their substances. And so anyway, uh, that was a, a big push um, in Colorado was to see that happen. And medical doctors had nothing to do with the conversation. You, uh, American Medical Association against legalization, against medical marijuana, against recreational Academy of Pediatrics against it. Uh, every statewide society of, of medicine was against it. Um, so doctors had nothing to do with it. And when you when you look at the program, 
Instagram now in terms of who is recommending marijuana, medical marijuana, because you can't prescribe it. And I think a lot of people say prescription, but it's federally illegal substance. There's no dosage. There's no science involved with this. So you don't get a prescription. You just get a card that says my doctor said it's OK for me to go buy weed. That's literally what, what this is. Um, and uh, uh, but you look at the percentages and it's about two percent of doctors are actually telling their patients, I will recommend this for you. So two percent of doctors are making up like 80, 90 percent of the recommendations for medical marijuana. So very little medical industry involvement at all because it, it's, it's not scientific. Mm-hmm. And does it become just a, a racket for those small population of doctors like they end up building their entire practice around it? That's exactly right. So if you if you look up in Colorado, doctors, medical marijuana, you'll see doctors that their entire practice is literally just medical marijuana recommendations. They're like medical marijuana docs. Um, and it's a disgrace to the profession, in my opinion, because mm-hmm. there's just it's you know, not helping patients. It's clearly um, a way to get them access. Is there any liability imposed on those doctors if they make a diagnosis and the, the person misuses it and they end up getting sicker or, you know, hurting themselves? As of right now, there's no liability at all mm-hmm. um, because they're not prescribing it. Um, and and that was actually something we tried to work on in Colorado two years ago was we we passed a House bill that was trying to increase more of the physician involvement in the process because, you know, Colorado is a state that wasn't going to roll it back, but could we make it more accountable? So we said, look, doctors, if you're going to recommend this to your patient, you have to put the you know potency of marijuana, which that's something that's really changed a lot in recent years. We can talk about that. You have to put the potency or, uh, amount you're recommending you have to try to put, you know, some sort of dosage, which is kind of crazy, like how many puffs a day of a joint of marijuana or whatever. Kind of an interesting place we're in. Um, uh, but, uh, you know, we, we try to get them to be more more specific with it to increase that accountability. And doctors really did like that because they said, well, you know, this isn't something that's FDA, uh, you know, uh, uh, validated. So how am I supposed to make a recommendation on anything? And we we're like, that's exactly the right question to be asking. Like, yeah. Why should you be doing that? And so most doctors won't. Um, yeah. But so. Uh, Again, back to the timeline, what started happening in the 2010s? So commercializations what started happening. Mm -hmm. So people thought it was medicine. What we got was a huge industry. Um, Big Tobacco started getting involved. Um, As er, as early as the 1970s, R.J. Reynolds, in their documents that were discovered through discovery of the um, uh, class action lawsuit and all of that, they had plans to get into marijuana. Um, Big Tobacco has been trying to do this for 50 years. Um, R.J. Reynolds, Philip Morris, all of them have had plans for more than 50 years to get into marijuana eventually. Um, And so... What we discovered was they had been kind of in the in the background pushing this Uh, big alcohol was another um, player that would come in a little bit later. But commercializations would happen. We had an industry that was advertising these products. Then potency started to go up. So um, more people were getting hooked and addicted to higher potency formulations of this drug, which had never existed before because there wasn't an industry that was in a capitalist society in a free market um, that was innovating around these products. Um, So with medical marijuana, you had that industry and the ability to do that and the advertising. So usage went up, interest went up, um, the messages got out across the country from uh, an industry that had a profit incentive to get uh, legalized in other states. So more states started legalizing medical marijuana. So the interest is going up. Colorado and Washington state then in 2012 become the first two states in the in the country to legalize recreational marijuana. Um, and that's when you really saw the industry blow up. Um, you saw products we'd never seen before. Um, shatters, waxes, candies, concentrates, um, THC levels. That, that's the ingredient that gets you high from marijuana. Uh, we saw that get up to 99 percent potency where literally just two decades prior, prior to legalization, 
the potency was between one and three percent THC. So you go from one and three percent to ninety nine percent. Then we started seeing addiction rates really start to skyrocket. You know, most people don't think of marijuana as something that's addictive. Um, they think of you know joints and whatever. And we've all heard that you know marijuana never hurt anybody. Marijuana is not addictive. Blah blah. These various uh, myths out there. We literally saw our country go from in the 1990s, one in 10 people who use marijuana in the last year would develop a, a cannabis use disorder, an addiction, uh, to then starting in 2010, 2020, uh, one in three people who use marijuana in the last year will develop a cannabis use disorder. And, and that's according to our nation's top research institutions. Um, so I think people would think that's crazy. But what they don't realize is what changed from 2000 to 2020, frankly, um, which is a huge industry that changed these products. Yeah. Um, so let's talk about the the drug itself. Um, you know, one of the interesting riffs we were talking about right before the show is that the tobacco leaf itself has not changed very much in the last five centuries, ten centuries, whatever it might be. Um, and maybe I'm wrong about that. Um, but I'm but but it doesn't seem to be the case that that's the case. Now there is a whole secondary thing with vaping in terms of creating a much more right. potent vehicle for delivery. Um, but it seems like there's a very prolific, active, and productive industry that is constantly changing the marijuana plant, its composition, its potency. Walk me through how the drug itself and the drug delivery vehicles have changed um, in the last 20 years, 30 years. Yeah, great question. And I think the tobacco historical example is really a poignant one for this discussion because it really highlights why I personally and my organization are against the legalization of marijuana and frankly, any other drugs that they try to legalize as well. Um, and, and so let's just look at the example. So uh, the tobacco leaf has been, you know, people have been smoking tobacco for thousands of years, been ingrained in society. Um, no one over the last several thousand years has been dying from cancer related to tobacco use uh, or very few people. And, you know, so thousands of years of use of the tobacco leaf, what changed about 100 years ago where all of a sudden millions and millions, tens of millions of people start dying from tobacco related cancers across the globe? Well, what changed was um, the uh, invention of the cigarette, the uh, creation of a new big tobacco industry, global supply chain model, advertising, commercialization, ma- mega companies getting involved, um, adulterating uh, the tobacco in these cigarettes with nicotine, with ammonia, with all these other additives, which they did because the for-profit incentive is to sell a lot of products. And that that's another thing I want to touch on, too, because, you know, the people think of companies as, well, you know, they don't want to hurt me. They, they, you know, they they have my best interests at heart, or at least I think some people think that. <laughs> and, uh, and 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 what we what we understand and maybe in, even in other issues, when you look at the conservative movement is there's clearly a lot of other motives involved. One of the, the key motives, and I learned this with my startup, is. I had a product for doctors. I wanted them to use that product as much as possible. It was an app for doctors to help them see more patients. Um, that was my company. And and, and I wanted to use them that, that uh, product as much as possible because I made more money when that happened. That was my profit incentive as, as a for-profit company. When you have a for-profit company involved in drug selling, their incentive and their motivation is to make more money. The way they make more money is when you use their product more. If that's an addictive drug, then their incentive is to addict you to that drug. Um, not saying that everyone that runs a tobacco company wants to, you know, kill and murder everybody and get them all addicted, but their profit alignment is supportive of addiction. So the industry takes tobacco, adulterates it, invents a cigarette, figures out a way to, you know, mass produce it, get people using it a lot, addicted, um, and then that's what we had happen, where they adulterated this product, made it uh, much more addictive, and made a lot more money off of it globally, and then we had all the problems. Okay, so that is a great case study for what we're seeing now with marijuana, where I talked about potency. So Marijuana as a plant, 
on average has one to three percent potency of THC. Uh, you know, Woodstock days, people smoking a joint. You didn't see a lot of huge public health problems with the, the low grade weed of, of yesteryears. And so people thought, well, you know, it's no big deal. It's just a plant. Like, let's just legalize it. And that's what I hear a lot about is, you know, how dare you criminalize a plant? And uh, and I'm like, well, you know, like opium, you know, comes from, you know, so it's just anyway, we could get into the, the plant discussion. But but uh, it's no longer a plant now. Um, because of the commercial industry, we're seeing exactly what happened with tobacco happen with marijuana, where um, they're taking the plant, adulterating it, genetically modifying it, um, you know, altering it in chemical labs, making it up to 99% potency, which has never naturally been, making it more addictive, um, making it more harmful in a lot of ways, adulterating it. Um, and so we're seeing the exact same thing play out with marijuana. And so this is why we can't go down the road of legalization of substances, particularly within a free market capitalist context because companies will innovate. That's the beauty of of the free market is companies will innovate, find ways to get their products into people's hands easier and more cheaply. That's great when it's a phone. That's great when it's technology to help make people's lives better. It is uh, really dystopian, quite frankly, if it if it involves addictive drugs that yeah. can harm people and harm society. So you've used uh, this word a couple times and it's it's extremely controversial. And I want you to break down what exactly the status of the science is right now, which is addiction. Yeah. Um, you've also used the term cannabis use disorder. What is the current state of science on the addictiveness of marijuana? What are some of the misconceptions about it? The public meme is that it's just completely not addictive. What are you talking about, you dumb root boomer? Like, uh -huh. what, what's the actual uh -huh. status quo? Yeah, well, so if you know, you ask anyone in the scientific community and the medical community, it's not even a debate. Um, the ICD-10 code diagnosis code for marijuana addiction is cannabis use disorder. It's got a whole code group that you'll be diagnosed with if you go to the doctor and you have it. Um, so it's not even a discussion in the scientific community. It's not even a debate. Um, the only place where it is a debate is with people with profit incentive industry uh, representatives who say it's no big deal. And we've seen this all before. Uh, Purdue Pharma, opioids. There was one little paragraph of text in the New England Journal of Medicine in uh, early 2000 or late 90s that said, People using Oxycontin, only, you know, just under 2% of them uh, find it to be habit forming uh, with opioids, with, with Oxycontin. And most of us would look at that and say, that's insane now. But for two decades, Purdue Pharma and all the opioid guys made a killing off of that one paragraph of erroneous text in one uh, research study that was used to say, oh, it, it's not addictive. And we're seeing the exact same thing play out with marijuana where you have some people who you know didn't get addicted to it. Yeah, like there are people who didn't get addicted to Oxycontin. There are people who don't get addicted to cigarettes. We're not talking about a drug that's universally addictive. We're talking about percentages here. And so, you know, uh, low uh, grade marijuana was 10% addiction rate. Now we're seeing one in three, about a 30% addiction rate with marijuana now. And that is established science. Um, you can look up a National Institute of Drug Abuse, uh, National Institutes of Health. The research is really rock solid on that. So that's one key thing that has changed. The other thing in the research that we're seeing that is really, uh, in my opinion, maybe even more concerning is the link between high grade marijuana and mental illness. Um, so the, the Lancet Journal of Psychiatry is probably one of the most sterling institutions out there that does research on this subject. Subject. And they've released several massive population level studies just in the last five years um, that have looked across thousands of people using marijuana. And what they found is regular users of today's high potency marijuana, five times more likely to develop schizophrenia or psychosis, um, which for those of you who've read Alex Berenson's book, um, you should definitely read it. It's called Tell Your Children. It's about marijuana. He looks at the link between uh, marijuana use and the psychosis induced by that and violence. 
um, which is a really interesting link that is is worth reading more about. Um, but uh, you know, you you see this linkage now with uh, schizophrenia, psychosis. Um, now we're seeing things in depression and suicidal ideation that we never saw before, all because of the the, the changes we've seen in this substance. And I will tell you, in Colorado. Uh, the number one drug that comes up in our youth suicide toxicology by far is THC. It's marijuana. So I think people, again, will listen to this and say, is this reefer madness? Like, is it, you know, this is crazy. It's just, it's just marijuana. And what I will, what I tell them is we know in Colorado that marijuana is not the substance it used to be. Um, we're not talking about these low grade joints anymore. We're talking about concentrates. We're talking about a brand new, uh, you know, literally chemical grade product now that's been modified. And so we have to kind of eliminate our preconceived notions about what this drug used to be and really understand what it is now um, because of a commercial industry that's that's totally altered it. So yeah. I, I would say those are the two big areas in the research that we're seeing. So walk me through what marijuana addiction is actually like physiologically for people what what are the symptoms of it what are the other consequences that the delivery methods cause in people in terms of their um, biological response what 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 is, what what is the health issues that come out of it yeah so i mean it really functions like any other addiction uh, people have experienced addiction in different ways um, some people it's very extreme um, you know uh, withdrawals and uh, you know sweating and kind of the, all the things that come with trying to you know going to withdraw mm-hmm. uh, some people it's very easy to quit cold turkey i mean it really kind of runs the full gambit but it, it functions like the addiction to any other substance and i think that that's a key uh, uh, lack of education point, I think, around addiction for most Americans is they think, oh, you know, cigarettes, heroin, these things are just uh, addictive in and of themselves. And so I would never use that because, you know, that's just a purely addictive. But drugs like marijuana, you know, maybe that's not addictive. And what it really comes down to is drugs hit people in different ways. Um, there are people who can smoke a cigarette a day and then just stop. And it's not, you know, not addictive for them at all. Uh, and then there are people who they start once and then they, they go all the way. And so we don't fully understand why that is. Some people have genetic predispositions for those things. Mm-hmm. Um, but what we do understand is once you develop an addiction, it is a, uh, a disease as we understand it. So you make a choice, you make a series of bad choices in terms of getting into, you know, using a certain substance, then you've developed an addiction. Now what you've got is a disease that needs to be treated. And that disease, and this is what concerns me the most about it, Rob, is that disease is antithetical to your uh, your uh, natural functioning as a human being. It's It causes you to do things that destroy yourself. It causes you to do things that destroy your family. It causes you to do things that destroy society, frankly, that you don't want to do if you were in a rational uh, frame of mind. But addiction can drive you to do horrible things in order to sustain that addiction. And that's why we understand it as a disease, because it it drives you to do very awful things. And so from my perspective, I look at the family as a really key base unit of society. And I've seen addiction time and time again, destroying families in this country, because you'll literally end up in a situation where someone's addicted. They will steal from their relatives. They'll steal from their parents. They'll, uh, you know, pawn off, sell their car. Whatever. They'll do things to destroy and hurt their family in order to sustain their addiction that they would not do if they were living in that addiction. And so that's where, to me, the conversation around drugs is so vitally important, because if we legalize and sustain these things, there will be people driving a profit off of the continued addiction of, uh, of folks. And that is in my opinion, uh, going to denigrate our institutions and our, our our pillars of society, which, in my opinion, begins with the family. So one of the arguments that was made in favor of marijuana legalization that we now have the ability to to analyze is that it would reduce drug related crime um, that gang warfare or gang violence, cartels, right. um, other downstream consequences of 
illicit substance trade would would erode if you legalize it. Uh, is that true? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, El Chapo did not become a dentist after the <laughs> um, he, he is trying to get a Wells Fargo bank account, though, and I'll talk to you about the Safe Banking Act uh, later. But, uh, but uh, you, you know, I do think... Um, that was the big promise that was made. So there was a few big promises made to us in Colorado. First was it was going to help our veterans. Second was that we'd get rid of the drug dealers and the cartels and we'd eliminate the black market. And that has proven to be completely false. Um, so most people, I think, would be shocked to know that more than half of Colorado's market is still served by the black market. In other words, more than half of the people using marijuana are getting their marijuana from the black market in Colorado. 70% of California's market is black market. 70% of Oregon's market is black market. Um, and, and these are states where they've had nearly a decade to mature their marijuana industry. And, and, and why is this? Are people looking for cheaper stuff or what? Yeah. So, well, the couple, two, two main driving factors. One is the black market will never pay taxes and the regulated market will always pay taxes. So it's going to always be cheaper on the black market. Second piece of this is the fact that, mar- you know, people think one of the biggest things I get pushed, pushed back on is they say, well, Luke, you know, we don't buy moonshine anymore. Um, and, and, and that's completely besides the point because alcohol is a much more difficult uh, uh, product to produce uh, at home. Marijuana plants, you can grow them abundantly in your backyard or in your house very easily. Um, And so that is a big concern because it's easy to grow it on the black market. You have cartels that come into suburban neighborhoods around Denver and in other states as well. But I just know this from personal experience. Cartels, we have three new foreign cartels that came into our state after we legalized marijuana. Yeah. China, uh, Mexico, and I think it was a Nicaraguan cartel. So three new cartels came in. They didn't go away. They came in and they're using the cover of legalization to buy up houses, which has driven up our real estate values because there's less uh, inventory. So they bought up suburban homes, got them, turned them into grow houses where they have hundreds of marijuana plants that they're growing there uh, and they're selling it on the black market. And so legalization is literally the cover for drug dealers to continue um, doing what they do. And not only that, legalization has promoted the use of the substance. So it's creating more demand and that demand is then going to the black market, going to the dealers, going to the cartels. And so we're having more issues with violent crime and property crime. In fact, there's a lot of research now that's, that's coming out um, in Colorado and a couple other states that's found in places where there's legalization, there's more violent crime. It's gone up astronomically in Colorado since we legalized it, more property crime. And that's because we're seeing more cartel activity, more drug dealers involved. Um, and so it's odd, and it's just a little bit of a side note, but it's, it's odd to me to see some Republicans out there espousing legalization of marijuana, um, you know, for whatever reason, liberty reasons, whatever it might be, when we're in the middle of a crime crisis and we're we're pointing to violent crime, we're pointing to property crime. In Colorado, a big point of discussion uh, in the elections last year was around the issue of um, theft of cars and all these things. Well, you ask any chief of police, I serve on the board for my chief of police in my, my city in Colorado, um, you ask any chief of police what the driving factor is for property theft and car theft, it's to buy drugs. It's for it's for people who are addicted to drugs. So it is a really weird look to, on the one hand, say we need to address the crime crisis in this country. And then on the other hand, say, let's keep passing laws to legalize marijuana when we know from the research that it is driving up crime in states that have chosen to legalize it. You, you look at the crime rates in Colorado and California and these other states and compare it to the crime rates in states where they don't have legal marijuana and they don't have legal drugs. It is a total uh, different, uh, totally different picture. What about the idea of gateway drugs? This is another thing that the cultural meme is that you're a dumb boomer who doesn't understand what he's talking about if you call marijuana a gateway drug. Is it? That is a great question. So 
what I would say is no, it's not a gateway drug in terms of from the from the it's just purely from science, not a gateway drug in the sense of you use marijuana and you're therefore going to you know start injecting heroin. Uh, not likely. Um, in fact, most people are not going to do that. But what we do know is that uh, between 95 and 97 percent of people who are addicted to heroin, who are addicted to cocaine, um, they started with marijuana. So you can't deny the linkage between marijuana and other drugs. But it's not a cause and effect. So it's not a use marijuana, then use meth. It's it's more of a, a circumstance of the association and drug use. So a lot of I think a lot of people in America think, well, that person just uses that drug, just one drug. But in reality, it's polysubstance use. Nobody starts using fentanyl as their first drug. <laughs> Nobody, you know, nobody starts using meth as their first drug. They usually start with marijuana. And then once they, their body has kind of built that predisposition to start using substances, they'll go from marijuana to other drugs. So what we call it is a, and, and the literature really justifies this as a, a pathway to other substances. And so, uh, do most people who use marijuana use other drugs? Maybe not, but most people who are using other drugs started with marijuana. So it's kind of a, a an interesting nuance there. I'm curious if you could give me a little bit more color on the different delivery methods of marijuana and what, what they've caused and done. Um, I had this hilarious moment a couple of months ago where don't tell I, me you used a uh, pot gummy bear no i did not, I did not. Um, <laughs> that's usually where these stories go <laughs> I, I was i was going through instagram um and i kept on getting this ad for like an olive oil infuser and i i, I kept on looking at it. it was like why why would you infuse olive oil that way you could just you know if you want to put rosemary or basil in your olive oil you can just saute it in a pan and i it like took me a week before i like suddenly woke up at a cold sweat i was like oh i see what that's an ad for uh and it's like all the advertising used right Uh all the advertising very clever it didn't actually indicate what it was for because i'm sure there's laws against although i'm greek and i will tell you olive oil infusing is is quite frequent in my family well but (laughs) you you, you can do it without a machine is my understanding true yes we've been doing it for Um, thousands of years um so so, so t- tell me about the different delivery methods. What did what did the prevalence of vaping do to um, you know greater THC addiction? All of that. How did that work? Yeah. So you know back to the commercialization you know issue, commercialization, innovation, companies finding new ways to deliver the drug in a cheaper and easier to access way. Vaping was really a, a key piece of that, and that started with Juul which we all understand for was for nicotine vaping, but not a lot of people know that Juul started off as a THC vaping company. Oh, really? Called PAX. Mm. Yeah, and PAX spun off Juul to do the nicotine side of the house, and PAX does the THC side of the house. PAX is doing everything that Juul got in trouble for doing, targeting kids, social media influencers, you know, digital advertising, all that stuff. PAX is doing that now and getting off scot-free, um, and, which is really fascinating. So, yeah, uh, we're seeing uh, that whole dynamic play out. So they've uh, vaping, vaping THC oils. That's a big thing. Dabbing is another thing. So dabbing is really the way youth are using it now um, in legal states. And basically what dabbing involves is kind of like vaping, but it's like a little dab of a little bit of uh, wax of THC, highly potent, usually up to 90 percent concentrate and then they vaporize it and use a dab rig to um, inhale it and it gets them very high very very fast um, folks will black out brown out you can see it on YouTube kind of a crazy thing so that is kind of um, some of the newer delivery mechanisms that we're seeing that uh, you know you think about this just from a societal perspective we don't have a scientific understanding of what that's going to look like of millions of people doing that on a regular basis. Um, over an entire generation, you know, what does that do to you down the road? What does that do to economic productivity? What does that do to, you know, we're seeing some issues with marijuana use and, um, 
you know, fertility, for example, for, for men. Um, so what does that do to the family? What does that do to, uh, you know, offspring? What, what are the downstream effects of that? We had to learn it the hard way with tobacco, uh, where we had no idea what was going to happen when uh, we started mass producing and mass using a substance. Um, are we going to have to go through that all over again with marijuana uh, at a population level? Um, those are the kinds of things that we think about. But yeah, we have all these new innovative ways to use it that uh, are creating more harm, more addiction, um, it, particularly with dabbing. I'll just give an example of a neighbor of mine. Her name is Laura Stack. She lives just a few minutes from me down the road in Colorado. Her son, Johnny Stack, two years ago, dabbed marijuana. Um, had a psychotic episode after that and then jumped off of a parking garage to his death. So these are the stories that are now accompanying this. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, uh, that's different than smoking a joint, uh, you know, in the 1970s. Very different. Yeah. I mean, it's even a meme in like comedy where like, you know, older comedians will talk about, you know, you used to be able to pass around a joint and be a light buzz. Whereas now right. it's like, you're going to like go to Mars. <laughs> right. Um what about the children side of this, right? I mean, with with the proliferation of anything, um, it will inevitably percolate down to children. One, do the advocates of marijuana legalization, do they still make bright line distinctions about um, childhood use versus adulthood use? But in practice, how is that actually playing out? Yeah. Yeah. Well, the marijuana industry has been really good with their big brother, Big Tobacco, who now, by the way, is their largest investor. Um, Altria, Philip Morris is the largest tobacco company on the planet. They put $2 billion into the marijuana industry. So they're, you know, very much closely aligned. They've learned a lot from tobacco and, and they say, yeah, this is only about adults. It's not about kids. And one of the biggest arguments I hear is legalize, regulate so you can card people. And so intuitively people think, oh, if it's legal and regulated and they're carding people at the door and like surely kids aren't going to get into it then. And then I kind of look around the room and I say, well, I went to public high school. How did that work for alcohol and tobacco? Exactly? <laughs> like, I don't know. Like, I don't know where people kind of have forgotten about, like the fact that those things flow like water through uh, through youth's hands in, in, in this country. So. Legalizing regulating does not prevent our kids from getting into it. And so, yeah, you, you know, youth are using it. If you look at so I have a slide deck I do on this, but if you look at a graph of yearly use and monthly use for youth in legal states versus non-legal states, it it's not even in the same you know, conversation. I yeah. mean, it, it's much higher in legal states than in non-legal states. So youth are using it more. Addiction rates are higher. So there was a study that came out recently that said uh, um, after legalization, every single state that legalized marijuana site, 25% increase in cannabis use disorder for youth. So youth are getting more addicted to the substance in, in legal states. We know the message that it sends because the products that they're using are clearly targeting kids. So with tobacco, you know, a lot of us are probably too young to like know the, you know, have experienced it, uh, you know, personally, but they were using, you know, candy cigarettes. They were had Joe Camel. They had mascots. They were using all sorts of child friendly packaging and colors and products and all that stuff. Um, we're seeing that now a little bit with Jewel and some of the other vaping companies. Same thing is happening with the marijuana industry where they got, you know, Sesame Street char uh, characters like a pot shop in Denver was literally using uh, Cookie Monster to advertise its pot cookies. Um, then they've got Girl Scouts flavors. I could go on and on and on, um, you know, gummy bears, all these things. And, 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 and people say, well, we'll just regulate that. Like we'll write laws that say that's wrong. Right. And it's like every single state that's legalized marijuana says you can't target kids. You can't have child friendly packaging. So explain to me how cookie monster ends up getting through the, you know, and getting approved by regulators. Well, it's because these industries are able to overpower the regulatory state and you can't possibly fund these regulatory uh, agencies, nor maybe should we, uh, that's another conversation. You can't possibly fund them enough to stop a multi-billion dollar industry from doing whatever it is they want to do. And I think that's what we understand with tobacco. So 10 years on from the big legalization wave that started, um, 
what is the status quo of marijuana legalization across America? How many states have legalized? How many medical and how many have have chosen a different path? And then let's have a conversation about what you guys are doing in order to push back against the legalization wave. Yeah. So there's about 22 states that have legalized recreational marijuana, uh, about 30 states with medical marijuana. And that includes that list of 22. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So and, eight more. Yeah. Yeah. So and then um, and about 36 medical marijuana, but those medical marijuana programs kind of vary. Some mm-hmm. states like Iowa allow like, you know, very low potency CBD oil and they call that medical mm-hmm. marijuana. So it kind of varies. But I'd say like 25 ish states with kind of full blown medical marijuana programs. Mm-hmm. Um, and so what we're seeing right now is, uh, you know, what started with the normals of the world and the kind of stoner generation now has become a very industry focused effort of just, you know, um, Constellation Brands is the largest alcohol conglomerate in America. They are now four billion dollars in the marijuana industry, along with tobacco, who I talked about. So you have alcohol, tobacco, and then like the former Purdue Pharma CEO is in the marijuana industry now, which is crazy. He wrote the playbook for Oxycontin and now he's writing it for marijuana. Um, so anyway, uh, <laughs> you know, and, and so you see these big folks and you see hedge funds from Wall Street um, getting involved as well. So it's become a very big business push. Um, billions and billions of dollars being made billions of dollars at stake. Um, interestingly, you know, and we'll get into the Safe Banking Act maybe later, but um, the American Bankers Association and a lot of the big banks now are making marijuana top issue for them because they want to bank this stuff. So it's really becoming a gold rush in terms of a money play. Uh, very little conversation about whether or not this is a good idea for society or whether or not more people should be using drugs or being addicted, blah, blah, blah. Um, but that's really what's happening now. And so we're seeing kind of an inflection point, though, I will say, where uh, yes, we've got you know large number of states that have done this, but just in the last two years, we've seen four out of the six states that voted on it reject it. Um, most recently, it was Oklahoma, where every single county in Oklahoma rejected legalization wow. um, just a couple months including ago, including Tulsa, including Tulsa, everywhere, every single county rejected it um, by a wide, wide margin. And so I think what we're starting to see in, in Arkansas had a similar interesting result where it's like a 20 point. What were the six states? Um, so Arkansas, Oklahoma, North Dakota and South Dakota all rejected it. Um, Maryland uh, passed it. There was uh, one other state and I'm forgetting. Montana. Uh, no. Yeah. Yeah. Montana. Yes. Okay. So Maryland, Montana over the last two years. So uh, it was interesting to see, though, just with Oklahoma and Arkansas, which were just in the last year. Uh, rejecting it where we're, we're reaching an inflection point of kind of there's a lot of now research, a lot of uh, articles now being written about the negative af- aspects of legalization, that the crime impacts, the uh, increases in drug use, the fact that it never helped with the opioid crisis like people said it would. Um, in fact, you look at states with marijuana and they actually have higher rates of fentanyl overdose um, than states without marijuana, which doesn't necessarily mean it's causal, but it just means, you know, marijuana didn't fix that problem for us. Um, so I think we're seeing a lot more written about this issue a lot more no you know understanding of well this is what happens when you legalize it and i think people of voters are now kind of saying i don't want my state to become like colorado quite frankly which is unfortunate because I'm, I'm from colorado love my state but made a really bad decision with that policy call um and so i think though people are kind of waking up to that now the question is which people right because no. you just mentioned uh of the four states that rejected legalization dark red states yeah. um and then maryland is not a dark red state yeah. and, but montana is considered one. So yeah. like whoa, 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 break down demographically for me, what are the constituencies that are opposed to legalization? What are the constituencies that are for it? Yeah, it's a great question. So I think a lot of people want to try to make this like a red blue thing, but it's really kind of a funky issue. It, it cuts into both sides. So you'll see 
On the Republican side, you'll have folks like the Koch brothers, for example, who are pro-legalizing all drugs. Um, and certainly the Koch bros and, 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 and AFP in certain states have pushed for legalization of marijuana. So you have kind of the libertarian bent folks that say this is a personal decision. So they're kind of uh, supporting in, in many uh, in many ways. Um, and then on the on the left, you'll have groups like, uh, you know, what would they call probably like the blue dog Democrats, like, you know, our, our co-founder, uh, Congressman Kennedy, you know, you would say is a more conservative Democrat. You know, I think many people would say. And so there are those folks who say, look, uh, I don't want to see. Uh, more drug addiction in my communities. Then you'll have a, a, an interesting segment on the left of um, the kind of old school hippie stoner guy who like he remembers smoking joints back in the day and like Woodstock and hates the idea of corporate pot. <laughs> so they don't want to see it legalized either. So you'll have interesting bedfellows on the left and uh, on the right. Obviously, you'll have the traditional, you know, conservatives, the Christian conservatives and other folks who are against this from a spiritual perspective. Um, but I think what's what's interesting is the dynamic that addiction plays in all this, because if someone has family experience with addiction, um, they've seen what marijuana can do in their family, to their kid, to their relative, or they've seen what other drug uh, abuse can do, then they are much more likely to be against legalizing it because they see the impact that, that drugs have on society. So I do think as we see this addiction crisis grow, people are understanding that uh, this isn't just a personal decision that only impacts the person who's deciding to use drugs. It, it's much greater than that. It has much larger societal impact. It's devastating to families um, drug use can be. And um, I think that changes people's perspective on, on policy issues around this. What's the status when it comes to young voters? Yeah, young voters. I mean, let's just be frank. Uh, the polls are really clear. Uh, if you're under the age of 40, you are you know, very likely to support the legalization of marijuana. Um, extremely likely. And and I think we're talking like four to one, five to one. Like, yeah, it's like four to one. Okay. Yeah. And so, uh, you know, that that I think is a, is a real issue. And, and I often say, look, you know, if I could just get everyone in my generation to have a kid and a mortgage, it would change this whole <laughs> discussion because I've got two little girls and a mortgage and a wife and, and a household. And I just think about the world differently than I did when I was in my early 20s. And um, so I do think to some degree we're going to see that change as responsibilities grow, as people get older and um, and I think get more kind of rich life experiences. But the, the other piece of this is just I think we have to get the message out there that it doesn't you know, we don't need to reboot the war on drugs in order to kind of have a sane view on 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 legalization. Um, and I think that's a key message to the younger demographic is, look. Um, this isn't about criminalizing folks. We don't have to do that. In fact, one thing my organization has um, uh, positioned itself for is lowering criminal penalties for uh, 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 you know minor drug possession, you know minor marijuana possession, um, for the simple fact of look, like somebody doesn't need to necessarily have a permanent criminal record if they made a bad decision when they were 14 years old. And I think that's something we probably can all mostly agree on. Um, you know, and so I think getting to the younger demographics about that. Does somebody need to go spend time in prison for a low level offense? You know, maybe, maybe not. Uh, but I think, you know, uh, understanding that, you know, on on that same token, legalizing and commercializing and promoting this is actually going to make society worse and it's going to hurt you in a lot of different ways. And so I, I do think that that's a key piece. And then the other piece is just understanding the big business dynamic of it. Um, you know, the fact that there are companies that literally want to addict younger generations and do not care what their future aspirations are, um, but just want to make money off of them. Are there any corporate constituencies that oppose marijuana legalization? You know, uh, a, a lot of the folks in the transportation uh, realm, um, people in chambers of because commerce. They, because like truckers, you can't recruit truckers yeah. if they have marijuana usage, right? That's exactly right. Construction. I mean, you think about, uh, you know, uh, healthcare field, surgeon. Yeah, I'll never forget. Um, Pilots. 
what pilots yeah pilots airline pilots etc i'll never forget i was um living in denver when we the day we went live with legalization in 2014 and my next door neighbor i was a bachelor at the time in, in an apartment my next door neighbor in my apartment complex uh was a he had just finished his residency as an orthopedic surgeon and he had a little bag in his hand on day one of legalization going into his door and i was like what's that Oh, it's marijuana. It's legal now. I, I asked him, I was like, aren't you an orthopedic surgeon? Like, aren't you going to be doing surgery soon? He's like, oh, well, it's fine. I thought, I don't want you doing my surgery. Um, so that, that's a huge problem. Um, and, and so and so those constituencies are definitely against this um, Truckers Association, all that kind of stuff. Are um, they meaningfully activated against it or pretty active? I mean, okay. it, it varies a lot of times at the state level. You'll see chambers of commerce get really involved. Um, they'll take the lead um, in terms of opposing this because they have membership that are all affected. Interestingly, um, one note on the workforce issue. Quest Diagnostics just did a big release last week, and I think the Wall Street Journal covered it, where we are at a 25-year 25, uh, 25 high for marijuana positivity rates in the workforce. So people are showing up high uh, to work in unprecedented levels. And it, we did a, a focus group kind of, you know, we were trying to figure out what are the messages that work best for folks. You spit stats to them like that stat, don't really care. But then you say, imagine if you were going to work at the factory and your coworker comes in high and has an accident and hurts you, then that comes home for them because they they see that personal impact of, wow, that person deciding to get high, um, being impaired, and then coming to work and then hurting me, that's not something I wanna see happen. School bus drivers, that's another you know mm -hmm. um, uh, point. But so, so yes, you'll see those kinds of uh, corporate constituencies, but nothing like uh, you know what we're seeing in terms of the movement with the banks and the um, the big addiction addiction giants like alcohol and tobacco. Has the marijuana industry tried to lobby for like non-discrimination um, for, you know, basically trying to create like hiring and firing protections for people who have marijuana in their system. So, Sarab, they want to make marijuana users a protected class. <laughs> it's a novel concept that we've never heard of before. Uh, uh, no, yeah, they're they're um, so Nevada became the first state in the country to ban employers from firing people for their marijuana use. Really? Um, yeah. So any employer, like including employer, airlines and airlines. Like transportation you can't reject them based on their use of marijuana wow um so that whole discussion is changing quite significantly and so the, and, and, and you can see from the has industry, that caused an increase in like accident rates in that field it's a good question they just did this like a, like a year ago or two years ago so we're gonna have to wait and see what happens but mm -hmm. i mean you know that's an open question every time we see you know train crash we see uh, other issues there's always the question of was that person impaired you know what's in there and i, I will tell you though it's just kind of funny with marijuana advocates, like unless there is a joint smoking in the person's mouth as they crash the car, they're always like, <laughs> that person wasn't actively high on marijuana. It's like you literally have to find them like flying the plane, like a video of them inhaling and being impaired for them to like accept that that impairment had something to do with it. Um, but but we know from the science that the, the impairment you know can last up to 30 days um, wow. after you use it. Yeah. So let's talk about what the uh, big federal policy fights are going to be and specifically the ones that that sam is focused on um do you guys call it sam yeah okay sam. Uh, yep. Yep. uh so at the federal level uh one of the memes that's that's floated around a lot is you know golly gee these dispensaries are so uh besotted <laughs> they have to carry around bags of cash that are pallets stolen, of cash. pallets of cash that are getting stolen because they're so successful but they can't bank 
tease out this issue for me, separate fact from fiction and explain mm-hmm. what they're trying to do at the federal level. Yeah. So what the biggest thing that's the, the biggest possibility for federal action on marijuana uh, laws is the Safe Banking Act, which um, they're pitching, like you said, as a public safety issue, mm-hmm. pallets of cash everywhere and um, armed you know, with armed guard. Yeah. You know, we're, we're living in a third world country in states that have legalized marijuana. And I, I will tell you, there's dozens of pot shops nearby to where I live. Dozens. I've never once seen a cash car. I've never once seen armed guard. Uh, you know, none of that is happening because they've all figured out how to digitally take payment, um, whether it's through cryptocurrency or um, they've got third-party companies they can take credit cards with now and all that stuff. Interestingly, so in 2019, they were had testimony on the Safe Banking Act and they had the CEO of a company called LiveWell, um, horrible misnomer, but a company called LiveWell that has pot shops in a number of different states, including, uh, including Colorado. And he testified uh, on you know before the, the state Senate banking or U.S. Senate banking that they only take cash. And uh, on their website, they said they take credit cards. And we sent somebody undercover to their pot shops and they take credit cards and debit cards. So he lied to the U.S. Senate about that. So there's kind of like this secret between the industry and what they're telling Congress and then what's actually happening on the ground. I literally have a picture of a pot shop in Aspen that literally says American Express, MasterCard, Visa. So it's just. So are they violating the law? Are the credit card companies violating the law? Like what exactly is the law there? What what is the regulatory thing they're trying to get over to lie about? They are all violating the law. Mm -hmm. So it's federally legal, obviously, to distribute, sell, uh, promote marijuana. Uh, It's also federally legal to bank them. Um, So the the banks, the credit card processing companies, the credit card companies and the uh, marijuana companies are all violating federal law right now. And so Safe Banking Act is about basically creating safety for them. The crazy thing about it is that it's basically financially legalizing marijuana while keeping it federally illegal. So you can't use it, can't sell it, can't promote it, but you can bank it. So the banks, it's, it's really quite a, a feat for the banks. They get to make a bunch of money while everyone's still criminalized for it. And they laugh their way to, to their own banks, um, which is kind of funny. Uh, and so it, it's a horrible bill from a lot of perspectives. But what it's really about has nothing to do with public safety. What it's really about is um, billions of dollars in investment that needs to come in risk free. So um, we know that Altria, um, you know, the largest tobacco company, their number one goal is to get the Safe Banking Act passed because then they can have a risk-free investment in American uh, marijuana markets, and then they can really go hook, line, and sinker on federal legalization. So, so that's so kind it's of not just big. about being able to transact with the pot shops; it's about being no. able to do like investable capital and stuff yeah, as well. How does that work? They're already transacting safely, and we have them under oath on our website at learnaboutsam.org, um, where they've talked about how they're using banks. They're everything's fine for the industry in terms of financial services, um, which it shouldn't be. They should all be, you know prosecuted but that's another story uh but but uh uh so so that is not the issue the issue is uh major institutional investors yes they've already got investment from tobacco and alcohol companies that are willing to take that risk but a lot of the major institutional investors are still waiting uh until they have some sort of federal assurance in america because right now uh, canada is the only country in the world with federal legalization so they can invest in can- uh, canadian pot companies but it's it's fraught with risk in america because at any given moment the department of justice could decide to do their jobs for once and enforce federal law uh, and shut down these pot shops and a lot of people lose their money. So they want it to be risk free. That's the whole point. So the whole point is about billions of dollars in transactions and investment capital um, that that they want to have happen. And don't just listen to me about it. Uh, former Speaker John Boehner, uh, he will get a $20 million check if the Safe Banking Act passes. Um, he's at a National Cannabis Roundtable. He used to be inalterably opposed, as he said, to marijuana. Now he's on marijuana uh, boards uh, along with tobacco boards. And so he has said 
that the moment Safe Banking Act passes, there's billions of dollars in institutional capital that is ready to jump into marijuana in America. That's what he's talked about. So, wow. yeah. So Boehner wants it to pass. And do you think it will? Uh, I think that if any, the best chance for any legislation around marijuana is for the Safe Banking Act bill. I think we'll beat it again. Um, It's basically my organization, some parents who have been impacted by marijuana and law enforcement groups and family groups and folks like that versus literally billions of dollars in like the American Bankers Association, the, you know, all these different huge, huge um, institutions. So it is definitely a David and Goliath fight, I would say. Uh, but I think we'll beat it again. We beat it last year. Um, we took on, I think they spent over, they did some reporting on this. I think they spent around 25 million last year in federal lobbying on safe. And we spent like 50,000 <laughs> and we beat it. So uh, I like our odds. Yeah. Um, what's the constituencies in Congress that are opposed to and for it? Yeah, great question. So, I mean, basically right now, the godfather of stopping marijuana is definitely Senator Mitch McConnell. Um, he's, you know, for whatever reason, I actually don't know his personal reasons, but he's made it a personal mission to not allow marijuana legalization. So he was critical last year in stopping uh, the advance of safe banking. So that's a big piece of it is the Senate Republicans have been pretty, pretty good on this issue. Um, there are about a about a dozen Senate Democrats, actually, who are very much opposed to legalizing marijuana. Um, they've kind of gone more dark uh, in terms of their public persona on this issue because uh, Senate Majority Leader uh, Schumer has made this a top three issue, you know, marijuana legalization, which is kind of crazy. But the understanding is kind of so it's interesting with Schumer. Interesting story about him. Very much a leader in the anti-tobacco movement, very much was opposed to marijuana as, as early as or as, as late as just a couple of years ago. Um, but that changed when the rumors of AOC maybe primarying him uh, started to bubble up. <laughs> and so then all of a sudden he wanted to take on this marijuana project as maybe his progressive uh, credentials. I, yeah. I don't know. But so that, that's an interesting dynamic. But having the Senate majority leader prioritize more marijuana is a you know pretty big problem, uh, in my opinion. Um, and so and also, I think, just a disservice to the country. Um, so anyway, Senate Republicans have been good. In the House, you know, it's it's an interesting, uh, you know, mixed bag. You you have folks like Representative uh, Crenshaw who are really really good on this issue. Um, you have uh, Democrats who, like a few Democrats actually from Colorado, um, Representative uh, Nagus, who's rising leadership in the Democratic Party, um, and Crow, who I think have uh, really well founded concerns around this issue. Um, they're seeing how marijuana is playing uh, playing out in Colorado. They're seeing the impact of families and kids, and they're starting to kind of raise some awareness around those issues. Now, whether that translates to good votes on it. I don't know. Um, but, you know, I think that's something to watch as Democrats are in states where they're seeing the public health harms um, really come up. Um, and so, yeah, it's kind of an interesting there's really no hard and set constituency on either side um, of this issue. It's kind of really person to person, state to state and kind of what their personal experience is with it. Yeah. Very interesting. Um, the next vista of, of legalization seems to be um, a constellation of, of other much more um, uh, serious drugs. Um, there's a conversation about psychedelics that seems to be playing out in a very similar way. Um, and then there's the whole decriminalization injection site um, movement around drugs like heroin, meth. Walk me through sort of what the the outer edge advocates are are teeing up for the next 10 years of fights on this and what Sam's approach to it's going to be. Yeah. So we're seeing a couple of interesting things play out. Psychedelics is one of them. Psychedelics is going exactly how we saw marijuana go because the playbook has been proven to work. Call oh, look it, at these veterans or look at these cancer patients. Look at these veterans, look at these cancer patients, call it medical psychedelics, and then eventually be recreational. So um, I led the fight in my state against the medical psychedelics measure in Colorado um, that passed. 
Um, I was up against the medical community of the Tom's billionaire, Tom's shoes, billionaire founder and Dr. What Robert was the Sears. margin? Uh, it was about 54 percent. Yes. So it's pretty not that uh, sweeping of a vote. And I think if I'd been able to raise even half the money that they raised, I think um, probably would have had a chance to beat it. Uh, but it's it's very early on in the psychedelics fight right now. So Oregon uh, is the only other state to do that. So there's a push to get psychedelics out there. They're saying these are natural substances. And, you know, we've heard all the same arguments before. Interesting nuance with psychedelics is that uh, the FDA has marked, you know, psilocybin or shrooms as a breakthrough therapy. Um, so there is some demonstrated medical benefit uh, in a clinical setting. Right. Uh, and, you know, in a regulated setting like that, not in a not mail order ketamine, <laughs> you know, uh, microdosing in Jamaica, you know, for a, a healing trip. Um, that's not really a clinical setting. Um, but, you know, there's clinical value probably to some of these these psychedelic drugs. But we we need to kind of follow the research process with that. Uh, what we're being asked to vote on has nothing to do with the research. It's just clearly so entrepreneurs can make money. Um, and so that we're seeing play out because people think they can make money off of it. Um, we need to be wary of profit incentives with with drugs, as I said. But the interesting nuance with psychedelics is that they're not really addictive, at least they're not addictive right now. Um, that could change. So that's an interesting uh, dynamic because folks will say, well, they're less harmful because they're not addictive. But there's other issues at play with these where they're so powerful and mind altering um, that we've got issues with uh, hallucinations that continue after somebody's used the substance weeks after. Um, also issues with psychosis and other just mental illness related concerns. You don't just take these very powerful mind altering substances and, and and just kind of think that everything's going to be fine. Um, lots of issues there. And I, I won't go much further into it other than I will say a lot of the research that's happening with these psychedelic drugs is with a, uh, you know, psychiatrist, a clinical professional who's sitting in a room with somebody who's tripping for six to eight hours. Mm -hmm. OK, so it's a very intensive, long therapy that's going on here. Very different from what people are assuming where oh, I'll just, you know, buy this or grow it in my backyard and trip out in my house with a bunch of my friends like that, you know, dangerous. You're putting yourself at the the uh, you know, mercy of people around you. And we are seeing, unfortunately, rising cases of people being taken advantage of sexually um, in these these situ uh, situations with using psychedelics. So lots of risk factors, things, unknowns, all that stuff there. Um, but really where we're headed, though, is the legalization of all drugs. And it's going to start with um uh, safe injection and safe supply. So Oregon has become the first state to decriminalize all drugs, everything. It's a hundred dollar fine. If you're caught with heroin and you're 14 years old, if you pay that fine, your parents don't even know about it. <laughs> Literally. Um, no one's going to treatment. No one's getting access to services to help with their addiction. And this Oregon basically just said, you know, forget it just do whatever you want. Okay. So starts with, you know, they call it treatment over incarceration great concept except for the fact that no one's getting access to treatment no one's funding treatment nobody's helping folks in addict in addiction so it's a whole other uh, question but starts there then they say injection sites because we need injection sites where people can safely quote unquote quote unquote safely inject drugs um that won't be uh so if they overdose they can be have their overdose re uh, reversed with naloxone and it's basically like just the worst of all worlds from a policy perspective because it's a band-aid solution that sustains people's addiction it doesn't help them the folks that go into these injection sites there's um two now in new york that are federally illegal um there's one that's been going for 10 plus years in vancouver british columbia where we can kind of see what's happened there and what's happened is their opioid rates are worse uh, than our rates are in america without them so it clearly is not helped. Um, but we got two now in New York. And so uh, they'll say, well, you know, no one's died in these injection sites. Well, 80 plus 90 plus percent of people that go to those injection sites to use these drugs 
they're using their drugs still out on the streets too. So they're still going to OD and, and possibly die later, just not in that injection site. So starts there. And then there's a thing called safe supply. And, uh, you know, Senator Rubio was really uh, stunned with the whole idea of crack pipes being taxpayer funded. I, I, I told uh, one of his um, top staff members, I said, just wait till he hears about safe supply, um, because safe supply is this concept that, well, we've got a fentanyl crisis going on and uh, drugs are tainted with fentanyl and killing people. So the government should supply pure heroin, pure whatever the drug of choice is to make sure there's no fentanyl in it and give it out to users for free um, to to keep them alive. And so that's where this is heading is basically pharmaceutical grade access to um, all the various substances out there. And that's something that's already happening in Canada right now. Um, so those are the kinds of fights that we're kind of keeping an eye on and, and having to kind of educate folks on. What is the reason that that drug supply is tainted with fentanyl? Yeah, great, great question. So two answers to that. So to uh, the first thing we should understand is that uh, a large number of people now are addicted directly to fentanyl. So there's this there's this notion out there that if people just knew fentanyl was in there. So there's like fentanyl test strips like you can test your drugs to see if fentanyl's in them. Um, th they think that folks are out there saying if people just know that fentanyl's in there then they won't use it. It's not the case. Um, fentanyl is is a high that is 100% more potent than heroin. Uh, so people are seeking that now because it's so much more potent and, and, and the high is much better and people like that. So it's being sought after. So that is an important thing to kind of set the record straight on. But in addition, yes, there's a lot of drugs though that are tainted with fentanyl. And the reason why is because of that potency and of that better high. So, um, you know, people are getting different drugs. Uh, dealers are cutting it with fentanyl to give it a little more oomph, um, to make it maybe a little more addictive, keep their people coming back to them. Um, so there's kind of a supply and demand thing happening mm -hmm. with that. And where people are dying is fentanyl is so potent. You know, we've all heard the stories, you know, one little grain can kill you. So it's being done in a very uh, rudimentary way. It's being cut into these. You're substances. telling me the trailer park where they're cutting these drugs is not a, a biochemical. It's not a biochemical lab. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's right. That's right. Yep. Yeah. And so then you have the folks say, well, it should be a biochemical lab. So let's give them the let's let the pharmaceutical companies help make sure that it's pure and that it's, you know, all these things. But what you end up doing there is just um, sustaining addiction and, and keeping people on a government supplied um, dope, which I think is kind of a problematic place to go. Luke, where can people keep up with everything that you guys are working on at SAM? And more importantly, I think, because I'm sure we have a ton of skeptics listening to this, where can they find all the documentation for everything you do? Yeah, saw? yeah. So um, check out our website, learnaboutsam.org. It's got everything on marijuana that you could need. Our science advisory board, you can check them out. People from Harvard, Princeton, Yale doing research on marijuana today. So we really cut our teeth on the science. You'll see that on our website, learnaboutsam.org. And then for our work on other drugs, you can go to our sister organization. It's called Foundation for Drug Policy Solutions. Um, gooddrugpolicy.org gooddrugpolicy.org because we think we need good drug policy not bad and where can people follow you online yes yeah, so check me out on twitter uh, luke niferatos um, just you know you'll have a hard time spelling that but if you just do luke nif you'll find me i'm the yeah. only niferatos on twitter yeah um and you seem to have a lot of trolls that seem to be quite annoyed with you most of the time yep yep i've you know i found that if uh you know my enemies tend to be folks who are have uh no profile picture and they follow about 200 accounts and have zero followers and uh, they like to to harass. So if you want to um, get in on that action, just shoot me a reply and I'm sure they'll they'll jump on. Fantastic. Well, Luke, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you, Sir Robin. Thanks for the great work American Moments doing. I, I think it's really changing the game here in D.C. 
Hopefully you guys enjoyed that. As I said, be sure to send some feedback to us. Email podcast at AmericanMoment.org if you'd like to uh, put a comment there or ask us a question. Always be sure to reach out to us at AmericanMoment.org slash join to get involved. Uh, Be sure to rate and review this podcast and be sure to come to AM Fridays this summer, our cutting edge uh, summer lunch series on Capitol Hill. Uh, We're always grateful uh, this summer season because we have our new fellows class starting. Foundation is about to get started. AM Fridays is going. We're releasing this podcast every week. It's exceptionally busy, but it's one of those uh, seasons of the year where I'm reminded that we are extraordinarily blessed to have a very, very cool job here in DC. Thank you guys, as always, for being part parts of it, be sure to check out Luke's work. Go to Sam, uh, learnaboutsam.org. Be sure to go to americanmoment.org, and we will see you guys next week. Moment of Truth is an American Moment Studios production filmed at the Conservative Partnership Center. Our podcast is produced and edited by Jake Mercier and Jared Cummings. Our intro music is A Minor Struggle by Ryan Serenich. Don't forget to like and subscribe on all platforms, and you can go to AmericanMoment.org to learn more.